Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. The early morning sun hangs over the horizon as an unknown man takes his crude shovel and he leaves his camp. He gets to a spot and, and he starts digging a hole in the, in the crusty soil near the entrance to the mountain pass where he and his family are scratching out a living. The back-breaking work becomes harder still as the sun rises in the sky. And he hits a strata of limestone that is, that is just below the topsoil in this very unforgiving land. The temperature rises and the dry dust burns in his throat and his lungs as the day goes on. Nevertheless, he keeps working. He keeps digging. And he returns the next day and the next and the next, digging deeper and deeper, sending bucket after bucket of stone fragments up to the surface. Weeks later, at a, at a depth of over 100 feet, the man finally strikes what he's after. And up from the cracks in the limestone comes bubbling a cold, clear liquid. And from the depths of that pit, he cries out to the heavens an exclamation of praise. Maim! Water. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 33 that later this land and its well would be bought for a hundred pieces of silver by Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, the father of Joseph. And this well would become known as Jacob's well. And its water would quench the thirst of generation after generation of Israelites. In time, however, this, this region of Canaan, it was, became known as Samaria, and it became shunned by traditional Jews. The Samaritans, who were an offshoot of the Hebrew people, they, they established in nearby Mount Gerizim an alternate place to worship God. They built a magnificent temple up on its summit, and, and they declared that it, not Jerusalem, was the place where Adonai should be worshipped and honored. And so for this reason, among others, a great antagonism grew up, a, a great antagonism developed between the Jews and their cousins, the, Samarian, the Samaritans. And when traveling between the southern and the northern part of Israel, most Jews and every Jewish holy man bypassed Samaria. They went around the long way around so they wouldn't have to pass through this land. But it was, for it was the land where those people, the Samaritans, the, the sinners, the half-breeds, lived. But in John chapter 4, the evangelist writes this. He's speaking of Jesus, and he says, now he had to go through Samaria. Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Tells you it's about noontime there in the Middle East. Why did J Jesus have to go through Samaria? Well, we've been studying Mark since last October, and I told you way back in the fall, those of you that were here then, why Jesus, what Jesus was doing. Jesus came to what? To teach. 
He came to teach. And he came to teach, and this is a place where he is also going to teach. And Jesus here, he, he picks the most unlikely of places, and he sp- picks the most unlikely of students for the only place in the Bible where he's going to teach on the essence of worship. This is, you wouldn't expect this to be happening here. Let's continue in verse 7. Read with me, and then we'll, then we'll look at the text in depth. It says, When a Samaritan woman came to draw water... Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And then parenthetically, John tells us his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then John again explains to us, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So this this took the woman aback that this this man would, would talk to her. She was a woman, she was a Samaritan. Jesus, in verse 10, answered her. He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whosoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Well, he's got her attention now. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming out here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband, and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right. When you say that you have no husband... The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. What you said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus interrupts her and declares. He says, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman says, well, I know that Messiah, the Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. I wanted to give you the the whole scope of that conversation so that you'd have a flavor of, of how they got into a discussion on worship. But you probably already figured out that the crux of all this is found there in verses 23 and 24. Jesus is saying that the essence of what it means to worship is changing. 
What they knew of the Old Testament sacrificial system and all that stuff, he said, it's changing. And it has now changed. In other words, it's here. It's now. It used to be all about culture and tradition and rituals and locations, but now it boils down to one thing, worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Now, a lot of people have discussed this and analyzed this and said, what does this mean? You know, and Eugene Peterson, who wrote the, the message translation of the, of, the, of the Bible, says this. He puts it this way. I've got it up there on the screen. He says, the time is coming, and it has in fact come, when what you're called will not matter, and where you go to worship will not matter. It's who you are and the way you live that count before God. Your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people the Father is looking for. Those who are simply and honestly themselves before him in worship. God is sheer being itself. He is spirit. And those who worship him must do it out of their very being, their spirits, their true selves in adoration. The woman says, I don't know about all that. I do know that Messiah is coming, and when he arrives, we'll get the whole story. And Jesus says, I am he. You don't have to wait any longer or look any further. Isn't that great? You don't have to wait any longer or look any further and utter and other, and to get the, the full story, the whole story about worship. So the, the essence of worship we can see here in, in Peterson's rendering there, I've highlighted it, is he says the kind of people the Father is looking for are those who are simply and honestly themselves before him in worship. Simply and honestly themselves before him in worship because God is sheer being himself. He is spirit. And those who worship him must do it out of their very being. It's about being, not necessarily doing. The doing is important, but it's the being that's even more important. They must do it out of their very being, their spirits, their true selves in adoration. Well, I've kind of boiled that down into a, into a definition that's there on your life notes if you look at them again. I think it's what Jesus is getting at is, is this, that, that, that worship is the everyday activity of bringing all that I am, everything I am, the good, the bad, the ugly, bringing all that I am into intimate contact with God and all that he truly is. That's a succinct definition of worship. Now, in order to understand this, I want us to look at some things here, some obstacles to worship, things that can stand in the way of this worship by this definition that we're talking about. Three common obstacles to worship. And the first is this. It's limiting worship to a certain place, a certain time, or a certain approach. When worship becomes, <clears throat> excuse me, for us, a place, a certain hour of the week, or a certain way or mode of worshiping, then it becomes limited. And we become stunted in, this, in our growth of this whole thing about worship because worship is meant to be an everyday activity. Not limited to the Sabbath, not limited to Sunday, not limited to the time that we're in chapel or church. Jesus made it clear when he said, you guys worship here, we worship there. The time is coming when that ain't going to matter. Why? Because worship is all about engaging God every day. It's an everyday activity. But we're creatures of habit, aren't we? And we tend to, sink, to seek comfort. We feel different degrees of discomfort as we encounter threats to our habits, threats to our patterns, threats to the things that, that we like to do. 
So when we're involved in a service and it, and it runs a little short or it runs a little long and, and someone's sitting in our seat when we get there, um, when, when the approach that the worship leader takes is a bit different than what we're used to, we feel uncomfortable. And, and, and we may even get a little bit miffed and we feel like, what's happened? What's happened to our worship? And that little short word is, 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 is the problem. Because we make worship about us rather than about him. It's our worship. No, it's his worship. We worship for an audience of one. Worship isn't about us. It's about him. You need to kind of evaluate yourself if, you're, if you think you're that way. And, 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 and let's be honest, most of us have probably at least kind of felt that way, if not outright felt that way at times. Because worship isn't a, a certain time, a certain place, a certain seat. Um, if, if we're pursuing all of that, we're not pursuing worship we're pursuing comfort. And, and, and comfortable worship is an oxymoron. It doesn't make sense, like jumbo shrimp, or some would jokingly say military intelligence. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's an oxymoron. Worship isn't necessarily supposed to be comfortable. There's nothing comfortable about coming into the presence of the one who knows everything about you, even the things that you don't know about yourself, even the things that you won't admit to yourself. There's nothing comfortable about that. Ask Isaiah. Look at chapter 6 of his, of his book. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up there in, in his vision in the temple in Jerusalem, he said, woe, is, woe to me, I'm undone. For I'm a man, I'm a sinful man, and I live amongst sinful people. And he, he hit the floor. Ask John, Jesus' best friend that wrote the, the gospel that we're, re we're referring to today. When John sees the glorified Christ in Revelation 1, he too falls down and says, this is the end of me. Or ask Peter. After Jesus you know, gave Peter the miraculous catch of fish so he could pay off his taxes, Peter fell down on the boat and he said, get away from me. I don't deserve to be here. I don't, you, 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 I'm a sinful man. That's what it's like to be in the presence of God. But sometimes I feel that we even forget that God is here, that God sees us. We're here to worship him, but sometimes I wonder, do we even acknowledge his presence? There's nothing comfortable about worship. If you're pursuing comfort, you're not pursuing worship. You're, you're pursuing yourself. If this hour is all that you get of, of worship during a week, it's not enough. And I think that's the point Jesus was trying to make by teaching about worship right there in the middle of the day, in the middle of the street, so to say. I think he was trying to point out that worship belongs in the streets just as much as it belongs in the churches. It belongs in everyday matters of life. You see, when we stop singing, we don't stop worshiping. Hopefully you can worship as you listen to the, to the teaching of God's word. Hopefully you can worship as you leave this place at the end of this service of worship, as you talk to people, as you fellowship around tables, as you, as you go about your, your life throughout this day and, th and throughout every day. You can worship God on a sunny day as you say, God, thank you, you are so good. Thank you, give, I give you praise for what you've done for me. When you wake in the morning and you, you have another day of life and you say, thank you, God, for giving me the breath in my lungs. When you have finances to, to pay your bills and provide for your, for your daily needs, you can say, Lord, I thank you and I worship you for that. It's possible every day to worship God. When you have a challenge that's insurmountable and you don't even know what you're going to do, guess what? It's still time to worship and to praise God because you may not know the provision that he's going to make, but he does. 
We need to move beyond a view of worship that's based on location, on time, or on approach, and see that wherever I am, wherever you are, whatever's going on, there God is. And worship can take place if I'm willing to bring all that I truly am into communion and intimate contact with all that he truly is. I can tell you from personal experience that sometimes it takes intention. It takes an intentional, an intentional decision on one's part to say, I want to be a consistent everyday worshiper, not just a once a week worshiper. That's why we need to remember that worship is an everyday activity. But it's an everyday activity of bringing all that I truly am, which moves us to the second obstacle to worship. And that is bringing just a part of myself to worship. I want to ask you a question. When you were worshiping this morning, when you were singing, were, were, were you completely engaged with God? Or were you thinking, well, I don't know this song, or I don't like this song, or I wish we were singing something else. It's Father's Day. Why aren't we singing Good, Good Father or something? You know, it's difficult sometimes because these thoughts come through our minds. Don't say they don't. You're not much different than I am. Often, become a, often before a worship service, I have a lot on my mind. Always before worship service, I have a lot on my mind. And, 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 and you know, doing this and doing that, it, it takes some discipline for me to, to get focused to begin to worship. It's why I don't like talking about other things. There's, there's at least two people in here I know that have texted me or emailed me in the past week, and I know I need to talk about something. And, and, and I saw them this morning, and, and I had to say, nope, nope, not before worship. Not before, before we start. I, I can talk to you after the service about it, but I can't do that. I can't get unfocused when I'm, when I'm trying to, to worship. And it's not just because I'm up here teaching or if I'm leading singing or something. It's, it's just that's what I have to do to focus and to worship in the right spirit and in all truth. So there's not an obstacle. And, and it's kind of scary if that's for, for a pastor or for a worship leader, isn't it? But see, Peter and I and Bruce, we're, we're no different than, than, than you are. And the funny thing about worship is that we can look like we're really worshiping on the outside, but the story can be completely different on the inside, can it? I don't need to ask a show of hands, because I'm sure if you were honest, everyone would go up. If I asked, have you ever been in a worship service, and you had to all of a sudden say, wait a minute, I'm in worship, rather than wherever your mind had drifted off to, thinking about whatever it was that was bothering you. It happens, happens to everybody. That's why we're talking about it, about it this morning. And I think that's why Jesus made such a point about helping us understand that ultimately worship is about bringing all that we truly are to God. You know, that, that, that phrase is there in, in spirit and truth. The, 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 the term spirit means that it means your whole being. It means everything about you. And truth reflects back on that being where it says your true being who you sincerely are, who you are when no one's looking, who you are as the person that God sees. And he really does see all of you already. You can't hide anything from God, but there's something about us where we said, I don't necessarily want to show him who I am. I don't want to bring to him all of who I am because I'm, I'm scared or, or I'm ashamed or I don't like who I am. And so we withdraw from God, and we come, and we sing, and we kind of go through the motions, but there's, there's just a small part of us that's really open to God, and we're not really fully present with him. But Jesus says, here's the kind of worshiper the Father's looking for. He's looking for those who are willing to take the courageous step of being themselves before 
him, of telling him what's really going on in their lives, who are willing to cry about the things that they're, cry, that they're sad about, who are willing to laugh about the things that they're joyful about, who are willing to shout about the things that they're excited about, and pout about the things that they're angry about. And the thing is, none of that, none of that puts God out. Am I still there? Okay. He's the loving father. He's Abba. Unfortunate thing is that some of us don't see God that way. We don't see that God wants us to have that kind of freedom. Jesus said, here's the kind of uh, worshiper the father seeks, the kind that worship, that they bring everything they are, the good, the bad, and the ugly, as I said before. And I think these words were, were, were really ringing in the Samaritan woman's ears because just a few moments before, she was trying to hide from God. She didn't really realize that it was God that she was speaking to, but she was trying to hide things about herself from him. She thought it was just some guy, some random guy that was there at the well that wanted some water. And so she tried to hide parts of herself. And Jesus made a simple request of her. Why don't you get your husband? And the woman made what she thought was a safe reply. Okay, well, I don't have to go into all the details and all that. I just say, well, I have no husband. A sort of a, a non-committal answer. It was true, she had no husband at that time. But it was a cover-up that Jesus promptly uncovered because he knew her. He knew her better than she knew herself. And she does what so many of us do when we're, we're faced with an uncomfortable moment before God. Jesus told her, what you say is, is, is quite true. And so she, oh, I, I can see that you're a prophet. On to religious things now. She, she tar- starts talking about religion. And she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. You Jews worship over there in Jerusalem. And you see what she did? She shifted from relationship to religion. Because we like to do that. We'd like to get caught up in religiosity. And, and, we, and we focus on religion rather than relationship. The relationship that God has called each one of us individually to have with him. You see, it's easy to hide in religion. It's easy to talk about or to do religious stuff. It's easier to do that sometimes than it is to deal with relationship with God, and that's what this woman did. We can hide behind the rituals and the the traditions, and we like it when it's comfortable because it, it sort of allows us to stay in that safe, comfortable place that we like. And again, we can look on the outside like we're really engaged, but on the inside, we might be hiding from God, and only God or you knows, or sometimes... Maybe it's only God that actually knows because we're self-deceived and don't realize that we're hiding from God. You may be angry. You may be confused. Bring it to God. Bring your anger, your confusion, your disappointment to him. It's not going to threaten him. That's worship. Worship is bringing all that I am, all that I truly am before God, before him, and just saying, Lord, here I am, warts and all. You know, you may not be aware when you walk in the door whether or not when you walk into this sanctuary, this, this space that's dedicated to worshiping God on Sunday mornings, whether or not you really are ready to worship. You know, maybe we need to put a, a question on the overhead when you walk in. Are you ready? It's why I asked Peter to ask that question at the beginning of the service today. Are you ready? You know, have you thought about it? Have you thought about preparing yourself to be re- ready to worship the Lord? to be ready to worship him personally and to to worship him corporately as a group. Because sometimes, the truth be told, we're not. We have to sort of decide that 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 will be what we'll do. We have to intentionally put things down. We have to intentionally 
leave things outside the door when we come in here. God says, I want all of you. I want every bit of you, even the parts that are unrefined, even the parts that may be dirty. He wants you to present to him the unfinished parts of your life as well as those that are finished and, and polished. We're so used to in our day-to-day interactions with human beings where we have to put on our face, we have to put on our best selves, and, and, and we end up, you know, really what we're valuing is human doing rather than human being. God is about the being. And it's the heart of the kind of worshiper that the Father is seeking. Worship is the everyday activity of bringing all that I truly am into intimate contact with all that God truly is. And this leads to the third obstacle, an undeveloped or an underdeveloped view of God. See, your view of God is going to determine your worship of God. Your view of God is going to determine your worship of God. If you have an underdeveloped view of God, you're going to have an underdeveloped worship experience. If you've got a huge, you know, expansive picture of God, then you're going to come in, you're going to be fired up to worship, you're going to want to worship, and you're going to, your praise is going to be equal to the picture of God that you have. And we need to be constantly thinking about who he is and what he's like and remembering what he's done. And that aids us in worship. That helps us to live rightly before him. A.W. Tozer in, in his book, The Pursuit of God, says this. He says, Christians believe in the personality of God. And they've been taught to pray our Father which art in heaven. Now, personality and fatherhood carry with them the idea of the possibility of personal acquaintance. This is admitted, I say, in theory, but for millions of Christians, nonetheless, God is no more real than he is to the non-Christian. They go through life trying to love an ideal and be loyal to a mere principle. Let me read those last two sentences again. To millions of Christians, God is no more real than he is to a non-Christian. They go through life loving an ideal and being loyal to a principle, not to a person. That's why within evangelicalism, we, we stress the importance of a personal relationship with God. A personal relationship with God. Jesus calls us to a personal relationship. Now, we got to be careful because I think that what's happened in Western society is too often we've forgotten that the gospel was given in the context of community. And we each have a personal relationship with God, but we're also called to have a community, to be involved in a community of other believers as we're on mission to the world to share the gospel, to advance the kingdom of Christ. And I think that's what was true of this Samaritan woman. She was religious. I think she believed in God, and and yet she didn't know a whole lot about him. She didn't quite understand what worship was about. She knew where Samaritans worshiped. She knew where Jews worshiped. She knew that there was an impasse between the two. And so Jesus goes on and he reveals to her, and I encourage you later this today or later this week to go back and read this passage and look at the things that Jesus reveals to her in the following verses. In verse 10, he talks about the the fact that God is a giver. In verse 10, God is a giver. In verse 19, Jesus displays God's all-knowing nature as he reveals the situation with her husband. In verse 21, Jesus gives God a new name. This would have been just, this would have smacked these people right in the face when he called God Father, when he called God Abba, Daddy. To the Samaritan woman and to the Jews in, in Judea, this would have been a new concept. They didn't understand that you don't call the, the Almighty God 
El Shaddai, El Adonai. You don't, you, you don't call him Father. But Jesus did this over and over again. He said the Father is seeking worshipers. In verse 23, Jesus portrays God as that being who seeks, who seeks. I love, this, I love the, the, the part in the, the parable of the prodigal son where Jesus there, he's showing that, that the Father it's, it's a type of, of God. The, the, the father is, is standing as symbol for God there. And what does a father do when his son starts, when he sees his son down the road? He runs. He runs to his son. And Jesus is trying to tell him something, but we don't understand that in, in, American, you know, in, in America because we don't understand that Middle Eastern older men don't run anywhere. They just don't, they don't run. They have an unanxious presence. They they just kind of go where they're going. It wasn't like now where you see, you know, guys in their 50s and 60s, you know, running around the park or running outside or riding their bikes, Tom, and stuff like that. No, Middle Eastern men don't run. But he showed this father as running to his son. This father loved his son that much. Then finally, Jesus, in this last verse of our text for today, he reveals himself as Messiah, as Mashiach the Savior, that the Samaritan woman was already familiar with that was coming, and he says, hey, it's me. I am he. So Jesus is telling her God's a giver, he's a knower, he's a father, he's a seeker, he's a Savior. That's who God is. And what hinders our worship is when we lose sight of who God truly is. I mean, why would I shy away from or hide from a giving, knowing, seeking, saving God? Why would I do that? Well, it's when I lose sight of who he truly is. And there's a million and one reasons why we lose sight. For many of us, it may have been our early father. Our early father fell short of, of, of showing us who God is. And some of the time, sometimes those father wounds get in our way of our relationship with the heavenly father. And we become scared we don't want to show him who we truly are because we think he's just waiting there to punish us or to shame us or to put us down when we mess up. And then we become more, more unclear about who God truly is and our worship suffers. And that's why we need to remember that worship is the everyday activity. It's something we need to commit ourselves to or try to commit ourselves to for an everyday basis. It's an everyday activity of bringing all that I truly am, not a part of me, not just some of me, but all that I truly am. And I hope that you've heard this today and understand what I'm saying here. All that you truly are, everything that you truly are, you don't need to hide it from God. Bringing all that you truly are into intimate contact with all that God truly is. Every single part of that definition has an aspect of life to it that we need to respect and we need to nurture. We need to move beyond our limitations that we often place around worship. We need to stay in touch with to what degree, what degree we're open or we're closed to God. Be aware when we're trying to hide stuff from God. Remember the man and the woman in the garden? What happened when they sinned? What was their natural reaction? They tried to hide from God. And God said, you know, Adam, where are you now? I've told you before, God doesn't ask questions for answers or in order to get information. God already knows. He knew where Adam and Eve were. He was trying to help them realize that they had run away from, they were hiding. And he said, well, who told you that you were naked? God knew what had happened. But we need, to, we need to bring who we are to God. 
everything. And we need to continue to grow in our understanding of who God truly is. And that's the kind of worshiper that the Father seeks. My question for you this morning, is that the kind of worshiper that you will be? What a story. joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.